Let's pray together. Father, once again, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the Lord Jesus, and we pray, Lord, that you would be transforming us this morning as we study the scriptures together. We pray, Lord, that you would shut our mouths and keep us from trying to make excuses in our hearts before you. And Father, we pray that you would convince us completely that there is no one who will justify himself in your sight. Lord, we ask that you would make this a liberating experience for us, that we would stop trying to prove our worth, that we would stop trying to show our superiority, that we would stop trying to demonstrate our prowess, And that we would accept that before you we are guilty and we cannot save ourselves. Lord, we pray that you would both use this to make us people who know that you have saved us. And we pray that you would use it to transform our lives and make us people who are free from burdens of guilt and free from the the pressure to, to try to justify our existence by our performance. So we commit ourselves to you, Lord, and pray that your word would have its way now, in Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> I read this fascinating article in the paper this morning about a time at the end of World War I when American soldiers were on the, on the far eastern front, American soldiers who thought that they were going to be fighting in World War I against the Germans, and they wound up all the way over uh, fighting against Russians. Unbeknownst to them, uh, military strategists were actually trying to stop or, or do what they could to help stop the Bolshevik Revolution. All these guys knew was, and this is a quote from the article, they felt misled by their government, Deceived by their officers, abused by their allies, and outgunned by their enemy, fighting in a war that was already over. So World War I had ended, the, 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 the peace had been established, and these guys are still fighting because Americans are trying to, to stop the Bolsheviks, the, the communists. And eventually, we, in this article, this guy named Private Henkelman and three others drafted an ultimatum addressed to the regiment commander that if they were not withdrawn from the front by March 15th, 1919, this is what they, they said, we positively refuse to advance against the enemy. Well, the commanders get wind of this, and Private Henkelman was hauled before a court-martial and charged with treason, desertion, and mutiny, crimes punishable by death. At the hearing, this is, this is remarkable to me, at the hearing, the private tore open his uniform shirt and exposed his chest to the judges and said, look at the lice, the dirt, the filth. We are half starved, he said in his defense, but none of you have lice or go hungry. 
And at that point, I was very frustrated with the article because it doesn't tell you what happened to the guy. It just leaves you hanging, and then it goes off talking about something else, and I'm like, what are you doing to me here? I, I want to know what happened to this guy. I don't know what happened to him. The judges may have said, well, in view of these extenuating circumstances, we will try to get you more information, and we will not pursue this case against you. I don't know. They may have said, we are pursuing this case because irrespective of the circumstances, there are soldiers in the same circumstances that you're in that aren't mutinying, that aren't committing treason, and they may have, I don't know if they, I don't know what happened to this guy. This I know. When we stand before God, when the books are opened, there will be no excuses that justify us. There will be no extenuating circumstances that will cause the judge of all men to say, oh, in view of what you're saying to me, I understand now why you did not obey, and we're going to make that not count against you. That's never going to happen. Everyone who stands before God will be found to be in the wrong, utterly, completely, inarguably wrong. I would invite you to open to Romans 3, the passage that was read a few moments ago, and we're going to look at verses 9 through 20. Romans 3, verses 9 through 20. And, and Paul's simple point here is that no human being can attain the perfect standard of God's righteousness. We are as far removed from God's holiness as we are removed from the moon. We are, we are farther away from God's holiness. And we could as easily live up to God's standard as we could thrim, swim our way through outer space. I'm not talking about spaceships, right? I'm not talking about, uh, you know, uh, airplanes of some kind. I'm talking about you start flapping your arms and you take off and you fly and you swim through the ether. You could as easily swim your way to the sun, touch it alive, and get back here by dinner as you could live up to God's absolute standard of righteousness. No human can accomplish the feat. He is infinitely holy. Now, Paul has been working the audience of this letter, the Christians in Rome, he's been working them up to this conclusion. And he has answered some objections on the way to the conclusion. We saw last week how he, one, one objection to this, verse 8, we'll just work back through what we saw last week. One objection to this is, well, if it's this bad, I should just do more evil so that God's righteousness is more displayed. And Paul says, no, that's an illegitimate conclusion to draw. Another conclusion, well, if it's this bad, why am I held responsible for this circumstances, this, this set of circumstances, for my evil, my sin? Paul says, you are responsible. Well, does this make God unrighteous? Verses 5, five and 6. No, God is righteous, and he's going to judge the world in righteousness. Does, does our unbelief and sinfulness make God untrustworthy? No, absolutely, God is trustworthy. And then the first question that he asked in chapter 3 was, well, do the Jews have any advantage? And his answer in verse 2 is, well, they have the Bible. They have the oracles of God. They have the word of God. That's an advantage. And, and in the broader setting of what he's saying here, what, what Paul is doing is building up to the gospel, this gospel that he feels obligated and eager and unashamed to preach because it's God's powerful, God's powerful for salvation, because it reveals God's righteousness, 
and because it reveals God's wrath. So here's the gospel revealing God's wrath in Romans 3, verses 9 through 20, so that, so that we can see the mercy of God in the gospel in the following verses, in verses 21 through 26 in particular. So Paul has established Gentile guilt in Romans 1, 18 through 32, and now in 2, 1 through 3, 20, he's establishing Jewish guilt, and he's come to his conclusion about how the Jews are indeed guilty. They have no excuse, and, and that's where we are today in Romans 3, verses 9 through 20. So look with me, if you will, at verse 9. When Paul asks, what then? Are we Jews any better off? I think what he's asking is, does the fact that we are Jews, does the fact that we descend from Abraham, does the fact that God made his promise to our nation, God, God chose us, he entered into covenant with us, does that somehow exempt us from the guilty verdict that stands over the rest of humanity? And, and really, if, if you sort of put your, yourself in the shoes of a Jew, or, or a Jew in Paul's day, or if you just think about how you yourself maybe thought about God before you became a Christian, or if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe you think this way about God now. Well, this special reality about me makes it so while all the rest of humanity may be guilty, God's going to understand me. Because after all, look how cute I am. Or look how smart I am. Or look how athletic, whatever. We come up with all these crazy ideas that somehow might exempt us from suffering the consequences of what we have done. And Paul says, are the Jews any better? Are we Jews any better? No, not at all. And then he goes on to say there in verse 9, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And if we ask, where did he charge this? Well, I think what he has in particular in mind is when he said, in 120, at the end of the verse, so they are without excuse. And there he's talking about Gentiles. They are without excuse. There is no excuse for their behavior. And then in 2.1, as he turns to the Jews in, a, in, in his audience, he says to them, therefore you have no excuse, O man. So he has rendered both Jews and Gentiles without excuse under sin. And, and, and now what he, what he wants to do is he wants to prove this idea that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. And the way he does it is he's going he's gonna to go through the Old Testament and he starts with kind of a, a thesis idea. And the thesis idea seems to come, perhaps influenced by, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 20, where, where Solomon says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So he's going he's to take phrases from the Old Testament, and he, and he strings together these phrases that are drawn from places like Ecclesiastes 7 and Psalm 14 and Isaiah 59, and this is all working to the conclusion that, look, the Old Testament prophets, they've already said all Jews are under sin. So you Jews who think that you're somehow going to be excused you think that you have an excuse. You don't have any excuse. This is already established from the Old Testament. And, and so Paul is going to present to us now in verses 10 through 18, proof from the Scriptures 
that all are under sin. So in verse 9, we see everybody. Jews and Greeks are under sin. Verses 10 through 18 is the Scripture proof that everybody is under sin. Now, before we look at it, before we look, work our way through verses 10 through 18, I'm going to tell you the way I think Paul has structured this, and you can draw your own conclusions about uh, what kind of structure this, in, this is. So he starts off saying, there's nobody righteous before God. And he's going to end by saying, there's nobody that fears God. And then in the middle, what he says is, everything that they say proves that they don't seek God, they're not righteous before Him, and they don't fear Him. And then everything that they do proves that they don't seek God and they don't fear Him. So it's going to start, there's, there, you know, you don't seek God, you're not righteous before Him, and you don't fear God. And then he proves it from speech and action. So look at verse 10 here. Paul says, as it is written, no one, none is righteous, no, not one. Obviously, he's accepting Jesus here. Jesus is the exception to what he's saying here. Every other human being, this is the verdict that stands over us. None is righteous. No, not one. And then it's like he works through and develops, why is it that we're not righteous? Verse 11, no one understands. We don't understand who we are. We don't understand why we're here. We don't understand the, the harm that our words and actions do. We don't understand. And then verse 11 there, the next statement, no one seeks for God. And as I was contemplating this this week, over and over through the week, it was like I was caught up short when I realized I'm not seeking God. And, and, and we, we seek all kinds of things, don't we? We seek food, we seek money, we seek pleasure, we seek uh, our own satisfaction, we seek humor, we seek opportunities to, to poke at people, we seek all kinds of things, and so often in our lives, we are simply not seeking God. What's wrong with that? Well, we were created, if you look back at at Romans chapter 1, verse 20, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And then verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. We were created to know him. We were created to, to seek what he wants for us that we might enjoy this good life. And we don't. We don't. So let me just invite you to take a moment here and, and really take stock of your life and ask yourself, what am I seeking? What am I after? What is my, what is my grand objective? What, what fills my thoughts on a daily basis? Paul says in Romans 2.7, he says that... Um, those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, God will give eternal life. And I think when you seek glory and honor and immortality, really what you're doing is you're seeking God. This, I think this is a great opportunity for us to take stock of our hearts and recommit ourselves to this. 
and, 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 and even cry out to the Lord right now. Lord, make me someone who seeks you. So it's, it's like in verse 11, God is the grand objective. And then look at verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Rather than seek the grand objective, rather than pursue glory and honor and immortality, which again in verse 10, Paul says that, that there will be glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. You know what? Doing good is, it's seeking God. It's loving God and loving neighbor. And rather than do that, we've all turned aside. And when something is not used for the purpose for which it is created, verse 12, they have become worthless. And, and again, this, this recalls what Paul has already said to this point, where, where you remember he said in verse 23 of chapter 1 that, that we have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We've exchanged our status as human beings made to know God and worship Him and serve Him and love others for idolatry and wicked behavior. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There is nobody who is righteous. We are not exempt from this. This is, this is who we are. This is where we live. <clears throat> and, you know, this is really a liberating, true diagnosis of our condition. This diagnosis of our condition, if we embrace this, it will make us humble. It will make us humble. Because when people come to us, uh, a, a friend of mine, or no, he's not a friend of mine, somebody I listen to. Somebody I, I, I listen to him so much he feels like a friend. That's why I said a friend of mine. Um, I listened to this guy, and, he was, and, and I was listening to him preach recently, and he was talking about how um, he has to schedule a day off. And then, because you know, his life is full, and he wants, to have a, he wants to have a day where he can rest and recharge and spend time with his family and do things his wife wants him to do. So he's on his day off, and he gets this text message, and um, it's somebody asking him to do something. And he replies, I'm sorry, I'm not available today. It's my day off. At which he gets a reply that he wouldn't repeat. You know, the person was not happy about this, and they said some choice words about him. And he replied, uh, you know, actually, you're right. And if you knew me, you would know it's a lot worse. It's liberating to know that this is who we are because we don't try to defend ourselves. We don't, we don't have to defend ourselves. If somebody comes to us and says, you know, you're wrong in this, that, and the other way, yeah, you're, you're probably right about that. And it's probably a lot worse. Can you help me fix it? Can, will you pray for me? This is a liberating diagnosis. It, it's also a profoundly true diagnosis that will make it so that we don't attempt vain and useless solutions just to make ourselves feel better. I think so. a lot of what goes on in our world today consists of vain and useless solutions where people who feel guilty are trying to make themselves feel better. And so they're doing, they engage in projects that really don't help the situation, but they're trying to alleviate their own guilt. If we just embrace this this diagnosis of who we are before God and look for God to help us sort out what's wrong with us and look for God to take away the guilt, we'll be, we'll be free of those vain and worthless solutions. 
Uh, Paul now turns to what people say. This is a great opportunity, again, for us to turn on our own ears and think about what comes out of our mouths. Look at what Paul says in verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. Now think about that image. What Paul is saying is that your throat is like a hole over a place where a corpse is buried. And I think the imagery at work is out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the reason, I think Paul is saying, the reason you talk the way you do is because there's a corpse in your chest. That's what's wrong. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Now, praise God. Um, when God makes uh, new life in somebody, when he takes out the heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh, we, we start wanting to say different things, don't we? And, it, and it's wonderful to, to actually communicate gratitude, to communicate love and affection and kindness to people. That's a great thing. But still, it's like, it's like we're still in this mortal body. You know, Paul says over in Romans 8, he talks about how, in verse, he says in verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. So it's like the new life, the resurrection life, has taken hold in us, but we're still in this mortal body, this dead flesh. And as a result, sometimes we say awful things. Now, I'm not making excuses here for us saying awful things. I'm, I'm inviting us all to think about the way that we talk to one another, to think about what we talk about. The venom of asps is under their tongues. That's poison. It's, it's venom that would injure people. Do we speak words intended to hurt others? To the extent that we do that, we need to repent. We need to acknowledge this is a true diagnosis. This is the way that I talk. I don't want snake venom under my lips. I want to speak in a different way. So we got, we got talk in verses 13 and 14, and now we got action in verses 15 through 17. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. What Paul is saying is that they're sharp at hurting other people. Their, their, their feet, verse 16, in their paths are ruin and misery, verse 17, and the way of peace they have not known. So feet, paths, way, all of this is, is a way of describing the way that people live, their customary actions, the, the, the patterns of behavior, bloodshed, ruin, misery, and no knowledge of the way of peace. And, and um, I mean, just think about what happens in automobiles. Uh, and, and, and I'm not just talking about what happens with the driver with reference to other drivers. Maybe the kids in the back need to think of ruin and misery. Mark their ways. Uh, just, just holding it out there as a possibility that maybe some of us could, could consider this and think about whether there's a way to get ourselves on the way of peace and what that would entail. 
not wanting to single anyone out in particular. But I know some cars that could be benefited by the way of peace. What needs to happen? What needs to happen for us to be characterized by that is, first, you've got to seek God. And then seeking God, what it's going to do is lift you up, your, up over your own petty concerns to exalt yourself over other people. And it's going to put you in a position where actually what you want to do is bless other people. You want to benefit other people. So in order for our talk and our action to be renewed, versus the middle section here, verses 13 and 14 and verses 15 through 17, you have to have verse 11. You have to seek God, and that has to be complemented by verse 18, where it says there is no fear of God before their eyes. Why do people live this way? Why do people say awful things and do awful things? Because they don't fear God. And now Paul, in verses 19 and 20, he comes to his conclusion. So he's, he's given us this claim, uh, all are under sin, Jews and Greeks, verse, verse 9. And then he gives us the scripture proof in verses 10 through 18. And, and the scripture proof functions like this. If the Jews are this bad off, then obviously the Gentiles also are going to be condemned by this, by this indictment. And then he comes to verse 19, and, and what he says is that all of our mouths are going to be stopped, and we're all going to be accountable to God. He writes in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. I think he's thinking particularly of the Jewish people here so that every mouth may be stopped. Why do we need every mouth stopped? I was, um, I was looking for good anecdotes about excuses that people make, and I was trying to remember uh, excuses. We need our mouths stopped because we are so inclined to make excuses for our behavior. And, and as I thought about this, I, I couldn't help but think of um, times when I've coached my kids' baseball teams, you know, and some kid will go up to the plate, and he will, he will strike out, and he'll come back to the dugout looking at the bat. Like there was something wrong with the bat, coach. That's why I missed. No, I think it's an operator error. <laughs> not, 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 there's nothing wrong with that bat. Or, or worse than that, you know, there were, you, you, can have, you can make excuses for yourself. You can make excuses for others. That we Recently on one of the teams that I coached, there was a kid with a terrible attitude. I went and talked to his parents, and I said to him, you know, I, I, I think you should address this, because if you don't address this, it's only going to cut off opportunities for him in the future. It's only going to hinder him in the future, so you, you need to address this. And the parent made excuses. Oh, well, he's really hard on himself. Well, that doesn't give him an excuse to be rude to his coaches. Oh, but he, he just takes things so seriously. Well, that doesn't give him, it doesn't excuse his behavior. You need to address his behavior. Don't make excuses about it. We make all kinds of excuses. None of them are going to stand before God. Uh, Chico Marx, one of the Marx brothers, his wife caught him kissing another woman, and he said, oh, I was whispering into her mouth. Well, that, that didn't help him, did it? It didn't help him. There is no, no, that didn't help him. There is no excuse 
that's going to help us before God. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. The whole world accountable. Why? Because God created everybody. God is the rightful moral authority in the world because he is our creator. And before God's absolute holiness, no one is going to earn the right to stand. So look at verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Let me read that again. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. We, we are so prone to try to justify ourselves. I, I, I happen to have the kind of profession. I'm, I mean, I, I do this. I pastor. And I also uh, teach at a seminary. And a lot of my colleagues write. And it is easy for, for people who are professors to try to justify their existence by means of publication. You're not going to justify your existence by publication. You, you could write the most impressive, the most renowned books ever known to man, and you will not be justified before God that way. I know, I know that pastors often try to justify themselves by the health of their church or the size of... That is not going to justify anybody before God. And you can, you can just think about your own life this way. Maybe you try to justify yourself by your appearance. Maybe you try to justify yourself by your health. Maybe you try to... I don't, you can fill in the blank. We, we're good at all kinds of... Maybe you try to justify yourself because of how, how unworldly you are and how, how you check all the boxes of your prescribed uh, you know, spiritual routines that you want to go through. We, we are, it is so easy for us to put something other than the righteousness of Christ and God's mercy and love displayed there as our claim before God's absolutely, absolute holiness, no one is going to earn the right to stand. Verse 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. By having a clean house, no human being will be justified in his sight. By having completed all the tasks on the to-do list, no human being will be justified in his sight. By having all the right opinions, by thinking all the thoughts that the, the people who are in fashion think, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Well, if, if it's that way, how is anybody going to be justified? What I want to do is just read the next passage. We're going to, we'll, we'll work through it next time. But, but faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And this is so crystal clear. If we, can, if we can understand that it is like we are at the bottom of a deep well. And there is no handhold on the wall for us to try to scale out of this deep well. And there's no rope coming down. And there is... There's no escape and there's no excuse. We got ourselves in this mess, mess. We're in the mess. We're dead. We're helpless. If we understand that, then when Paul says this in verse 21 and following, 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This, I think in context, this has to mean you can't attain your own righteousness by your works. But by faith, the righteousness you need is given to you. This is the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, 116. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the prescription is in 3, 9 through 20. I'm sorry, the diagnosis. The diagnosis is in 3, 9 through 20. And the prescription for the, redeem, for the remedy is there in 3, 21 through 24 and following. If you're here this morning, we don't want you to go away thinking, if you're here this morning and you're not, you're not a Christian, we don't want you to go, go away thinking, wow, that was sure hellfire and brimstone. Everybody's evil. You know, it's like... Uh, Maybe you've heard that, that uh, anecdote about Calvin Coolidge who, who went to church and he came home and his dad asked him, uh, what did the preacher talk about? And he said, sin. What else did he say about it? He was against it. You know, that, that's kind of what we got here in Romans 3, 9 through 20. Sin. But we don't want you to go away just thinking this is hellfire and brimstone. What we want you to go away thinking is there's nobody that's going to justify themselves before God by their works, but God in his mercy and grace has made it so that people who turn from their sin and trust in Christ will be justified by faith. And I hope and pray that those of us here who are believers will know that we don't have to justify ourselves. Many of you are students. You don't have to justify yourself by your grades. Some of us are... are uh, attempting to go to other parts of the world to do, uh, to, do th- to do things. You don't have to justify yourself by establishing that you were able to get into that country or that you were able to get accepted by that board. We're not trying to justify ourselves here. That would be to miss the whole point. What we need done for us has been done for us by Christ. And what we're looking at, if we, if we understand this diagnosis... But we're, what, what we come to, to perceive is the wonder of mercy and the glory of the gift. Because in this love of God in Christ, we see this healing of a rift that stood between us. It is all mercy. It is all God's grace. The diagnosis is true. And there is freedom for those who embrace the diagnosis and those who take the prescription, which is give up. Give up on trying to prove your worth before God. It will never work. And receive by faith the power to repent of sin and the ability to trust Christ. That's what we all need. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gospel. And Lord, we pray that you would be 
at work in us to make us people who live it out and people who live lives that are founded on it and pervaded by its truths. Lord, I pray that this would have all kinds of applications in our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would keep us, keep me from trying to justify myself by the fact that my car is not cluttered. Keep us from trying to justify ourselves by the fact that when visitors drop in, the house looks like it's orderly. Lord, use this, we pray, to make us more hospitable. Make us people who are more welcoming, more giving, genuinely humble. Lord, we pray that this gospel would so mark us that we would be unable to keep quiet about it, that we would, that we would want to tell everybody and anybody who will listen Lord, we pray that you would use this gospel to make our hearts burn, that others might experience your love and this freedom that you've given to us in Christ. We pray all these things for the glory of his name. Amen.